And all right. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Man, it's been a wild ride for Jonah. He was transported via fish. Uh, Not many people can say they've done that. Um, Very wild ride. But remember, he disobeyed the Lord. He was headed for Tarshish. Uh, He wanted to go to the edge of the world, which to him was west. So he was supposed to go east, but he started heading west towards Tarshish. Um, Just like Lewis and Clark, they went west, you know. But a little different here. Didn't run into any mountains. He was just uh, running from God. But remember, he got caught in a supernatural storm. The Lord had actually sent the storm, and then he was swallowed by a fish. Now he is being transported via that fish. And in, uh, like we just read, it says he was vomited onto dry land. And immediately my question was, where's the dry land? Like where did he actually get spit out after the whale had uh, or fish had swallowed him? Where is that? Uh, the short answer is that we don't know. We don't know where. But uh, I wanted to pull up this visual really quick because we have an idea. Yeah, okay, this is great. And many scholars believe so. He was here in Joppa. That's where he got his ticket to disobey the Lord. He's, this is the intended route. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to go all the way to Tarshish. But somewhere here, he ran into uh, that storm. The fish, we believe, took him back and vomited him right back to where he started in northern Israel. Uh, that's what scholars believe happened, and I believe that too. He started back at square one, um, and that would make sense. It would put him about a month away from uh, Nineveh, just walking, you know, depending on how fast he was moving. But if that's true, I mean, I just think it's interesting that he went all the way back uh, to square one, essentially. Um, I mean, he went south, he went west, he endured this terrible storm. He had to spend three days, three nights on the inside of a fish. But then he gets vomited right back to where he started. It's kind of ironic, but, you know, I think oftentimes the Lord... Uh, he does that too. He just brings us back to square one, to like the last thing that he told us. And what I mean by that, oftentimes I think the Lord speaks to us. He presses something on our heart. We hear from the Lord. He speaks to us clearly. Um, through his word or other people, maybe he's telling us something, right? The Lord's like, man, I wanted you to do this. And I'll use myself as an example. You know, when I was walking away from the Lord, when I was in uh, rebellion, I clearly felt that the Lord was like, Jonah, I need you to give up this, this, and this. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And then I uh, just took this, it was just a long, hard road full of heartbreak and heartache. And uh, I ended up at a rock bottom. And then I just cried out to the Lord. I cried out to the Lord and he reached down uh, just into the muck and the mire and pulled me out. I was thinking of when Jonah cried out to the Lord, you know, in chapter 2, it said he cried out because of the affliction, his affliction. But I experienced the same thing. But it was awesome, and when the Lord, he pulled me out of just that rock-bottom place, I felt like he just welcomed me back with open arms, just hugged me and embraced me and was like, dude, I'm so happy you're back. I couldn't, like, love you any less right now. You're forgiven. You're restored. Uh, I still need you to give up all the things that I asked you to give up. (laughs) So I wasn't off the hook, you know. But, and I did. At that time around, you know, my reaction was, uh, okay, Lord, I'm ready. All right, at your word, you said it. 
ever like Peter at your word, I'll let down the net, you know? That was where I was at that point too. I'll do it. But I think Jonah is in a similar situation here. He gets vomited right back where he started uh, on the dry land. God is really bringing him back full circle and God's like, okay, let's try this again. Now Jonah is in a position to say, okay, I tried the long, hard, difficult road. I did it, um, but I'm ready to do it your, your way. And my, that's just my encouragement to us, man. Let's do it God's way. And do it the first time you hear it, you know. I don't know what that is, but we just, like, yeah, do it the first time. Don't take the long, hard, grueling road. Heartbreak, loneliness, don't do that. Do it the first time. But okay, that's a little context. Let's get to chapter 3. This is verse uh, 1 through 4. I'm just going to read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right. That's awesome. Okay, I just wanted to look at verse 1 really quick. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I love how it says the second time because that means that Jonah is getting a second chance. Yes. But it also means for the Ninevites, they're getting a second chance too because their, their chance would have been lost with Jonah if he didn't come back. But I wanted to camp here just for a second because I believe the God we serve, he's the God of second chances. Amen. That's great, man. He's in the business of restoring people. I was thinking about uh, Peter. Remember he restored Peter? Peter denied him. Man, that would, that would hurt. That would hurt so bad, but the Lord restored him. He restored David, the adulterer, the murderer. Man, it said David was a man after God's own heart. That's weird. He restored him. Gave those guys a second chance. But I believe he can do the same for you and me. Uh, I remember in the first chapter of Jonah, it's actually verse 2. If you look over there, it, God had said their wickedness has come up before me. That means it was like starting to stink to high heaven. You know what I mean? It got real bad. <laughs> really bad. And if it were me and I was in God's shoes and I'm seeing all this wickedness, the wickedness of Nineveh, I would have said, okay, well, let's just give him the old Sodom and Gomorrah treatment. Let's level this place, man. Like, I can just, whatever. You know, that's me. I messed up. That's what I would have done. But God didn't do that, right? He chose to have mercy on him, to send compassion in the form of Jonah, in the form of his prophet. And that's really the, uh, oh, man, I love this book. He just gave them a chance to repent. But that's sort of the tricky thing about the book of Jonah. It's really a story we're going to see here. It's, it's about God's love. It's about his compassion and how God can give us another chance because that's how patient he is. That's what the book of Jonah is all about. But we get so wrapped up in the uh, fish miracle, it gets a little clouded. That's all anyone thinks about when they, you know, hear the story of Jonah. It, it makes sense, you know, it's a really incredible miracle. And I love what Greg Laurie said about it. He was describing the book of Jonah and he said, it's sort of like sushi in reverse. Instead of man eating fish, we have a fish eating man. <laughs> it's the reverse sushi story. And everyone knows that. But... Uh, it's really about God's love and patience. Man, I can't tell you how many times I you know, introduce myself to somebody. Hey, what's up? I'm Jonah. And they say, 
You been in any whales lately? You know, that's just the first thing that comes to their mind. Everyone knows the story, but all they know is the fish part. But yeah, it's a story of a compassionate God. And I love uh, verse one of chapter three because it proves that our God, again, he's the God of second chances. And maybe tonight, I don't know, maybe you're somebody who needs a second chance. And uh, if you're like me, my first thought was, well, I uh, used up my second chance a long time ago. I'm on number 75,000th, you know, <laughs> I'm like way past that. But yeah, maybe you do need a 70,000th chance, I don't know. But good news, man, God can forgive you. God can give you a second chance. I'm a testament to that. He can give you, I mean, well, I'll tell you what Jesus said about it. This is Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22. Let's read this. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. You know, when Peter asked that question, I think he was being very liberal with the number seven in his mind. I think, you know, we give Peter a hard time a lot, but I think he was thinking, for him, that was a big number, seven times. And Peter's theology up to that point was uh, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. Punch me in the face, you get one back. That was his theology up to that point. But yeah, for him to say up to seven times, man, that was a big deal. But it was an even bigger deal for Jesus to say, actually, uh, 70 times seven. And that number is 490. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys busted out your calculators. I'll do it for you. It's 490. (laughs) Then I thought, well, does that mean that the hard and fast rule is it's 490 times and we have to keep count? And if you wrong me, you're just like ticking away. (laughs) Uh, I, I don't think he meant that. I think he meant it's far above and beyond whatever you think the number is. Like, you'll die before you outdo my forgiveness. I think that's what he meant. (laughs) Uh, When I think about that verse, though, just what we read in uh, Matthew chapter 18, 70 times 7, and I'm pretty messed up in the head, so the thing I thought was, how can that be? How can he forgive me that many times? Like, after a certain amount of times, doesn't the Lord, like, get sick and tired of forgiving us and just leave us be, do away with us. And I will say that it is true, we, we reap what we sow. God's not mocked by that. We reap what we sow, we do. That's true, that's from the Bible. Um, but we don't get one over on God when we run away and then do a bunch of damage to ourselves and he'll, he'll still forgive us, but we don't get one over on God when we do that. But how can he do that? How could he give Jonah a second chance? I mean, again, if it was, if I'm the Lord and Jonah disobeyed me, and he bought a ticket, I would have said, okay, just keep going. You know what? I'll have the fish swallow you and drop you off in the Atlantic Ocean somewhere. I got a long list of guys that want to be my prophet. See ya. (laughs) That's me. But yeah, again, I'm really messed up. But how can he do that? How can he forgive so much? Um, Well, I I hope my answer just encourages us, but God's not like us. He's way different than us. God is not like us. Um, He's patient. And I'm, I'm somebody who, I'm convinced that if Jonah, again, we, we just saw it. If he would have been vomited out onto the dry land and he went right back to Joppa and bought another ticket going to Tarshish or wherever, I think the Lord would have sent another storm. 
I think the Lord would have sent another fish. You know, it wouldn't have been beyond God to do that. Um, I think he would have just been patient enough with Jonah to do it again. And I can say that because I'm, I am somebody who has experienced God's patience. Uh, he's graciously taken me back and just shown me compassion, just corrected me, shown me compassion time and time again. Uh, and maybe you've blown it, you know. It has, have you guys blown it before, like, really messed up? I've really messed up. I really have, for real. And I've been a repeat offender, too. For real messed up. <laughs> and I don't know what that is, especially guys. There's something in guys, we just, like, love to slam our heads against a brick wall. And all of our family and friends are like, don't do that. And the Lord's like, dude, do not slam your head again. And we just, boom, we just love to do it. And then a few months pass, and we're like, okay, I won't do that again. That hurts so bad. All my mentors were right. God was right. My friends were right. I should not do that again. And what happened? I don't know what it is. A couple months, we just do it again. We just slam our head right into a brick wall, and it's just like this ongoing vicious cycle. I don't know what that is, guys. Maybe it's just me. (laughs) I don't know. But at a certain point, we just need to stop and say, okay, I'm done. I'm done slamming my head into the brick wall. I'm taking God's advice. I'm taking my, my friend's advice, the people who love me. I'm taking my family's and I'm done with the brick wall thing. And I think Jonah slammed his head hard enough. He was like, okay, God, we're doing it your way. My way is not working out. I will do what I'm supposed to do. You know, it reminded me of the children of Israel, just how they were always rebelling. And like the story, it's just the same thing over and over. But you remember in Exodus chapter 34, uh, Moses is making new tablets uh, he actually broke the first ones. It's an, that's actually in Exodus chapter 31. Uh, but in Exodus chapter 31, I want to touch on that for a second. So the Lord, he'd met with Moses on Mount Sinai, and it was a really important meeting. Jonathan was there, his assistant, uh, a bunch of the elders of the camp of Israel were there, and God is giving them instruction on what to do. It's called the testimony, the law. This is like the most important thing ever. Uh, they're up there for 40 days and 40 nights. In Exodus chapter 31, it ends. the chapter ends with this verse. We'll throw it up here on the screen. Um, and when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So, I mean, they sound really important. Literally written with the finger of God. It's like the most important artifacts ever. But while Moses was up at the meeting for 40 days and 40 nights, the children of Israel got a little antsy. And they were like, we need to worship something. Okay, so do you remember what happened? They made the golden calf. Took out their earrings, uh, melted them down. Aaron was kind of orchestrating that whole thing. And the Lord is upset. He says, Moses, get back down to camp, man. They're worshiping this golden calf. You gotta get back there. And... uh, at that point, it actually says that the, Mo- that the Lord was ready to consume the people of Israel. But Moses says, wait, wait, I know we're stiff-necked. I know we're messed up. But just, I'll go handle it. I'll go handle it. God says, okay, go handle it. I won't consume them. Go handle it. So Moses comes down off Mount Sinai, and he's carrying, <laughs> just running down with the tablets. And again, these are like the most important things on earth, right? Very important. Then in chapter 32, listen to what happens. This is verse 19. Exodus 32, 19. Moses is running down. So it was as soon as he came near the camp that he saw the camp and the dancing, because they were dancing around the calf. Moses' anger became hot, and he cast the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. 
says Moses, uh, his anger became hot. It means he was angry, furious, white hot rage, and he breaks the tablets. And then he says, okay, you guys have seriously messed up, so here's what I'm going to do. He grinds it to powder. You guys remember this story? Grinds it to powder, puts it in water, and makes the children of Israel, the people who are worshiping, drink it. A lot of people think that was a death sentence because you're lining your intestines with metal. Really bad. Then he says this, okay, it's time to pick a side. You're either with the golden calf worshiping people or you're on God's side. The tribe of Levi, they come over to Moses' side. He's like, okay, now we're going to fight. And 3,000 Israelites died that day. Tribe of Levi killed them. Okay, fast forward to the next day. Moses had broken the tablets and he says, okay, I'm going to go meet with the Lord again. I'm going to try to make this thing right. We seriously messed up, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to get back up there. And this is the start of chapter 34. This is verse one. And the Lord said to Moses, cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. And I will write on these tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. That's like one of the best verses ever. He's like, and I don't think the Lord was saying, meaning to say it condescending. I think it was like matter, matter of fact, like you, dude, you broke the first ones. Thanks a lot. Okay. Exodus chapter 34, let's fast forward to verses four and five. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hand the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So Moses comes up with two brand new tablets. And this is uh, Exodus chapter four, 34, verses six through seven. And this is what I wanted to, this is the whole reason I'm, I, I'm going to Exodus here. But it says this, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. If you notice in verse six there, we get a description of the Lord, but it's from the Lord. It's really cool. Because if I were to give you guys a description of myself, I could be like, yeah, I'm, I'm really great. Like, you know. But my friends might be like, dude, you're not that great. But the Lord, when he's describing himself, he can't lie. So everything that we're hearing about the Lord, this is the truth about God. This is the, God is, he can't lie. So this is who, you know, and this is what he says. But he describes himself as merciful, gracious, patient, and abounding in goodness and truth. So why did I bring up that whole story? Well, at a certain point during the golden calf incident, um, you know, we're kind of making light of it, but it was very, very serious. It was very serious. And there came a, a point when God was about to start over. I mean, he, he brought the Israelites out of Egypt. They were his own chosen special people. And he would have been justified in deleting them and starting over with somebody else. He would have been completely justified. But he's long-suffering. He's patient. His temperament is slow to anger. That's God's temperament. Moses' temperament was not that way. It's uh, actually one of the reasons why he couldn't enter the promised land later on. Um, he had an anger problem. Remember in his youth, he killed uh, the Egyptian out of anger, his own people. And then later in Moses' story, uh, God tells him to speak to a rock and water will come out of the rock and Moses gets angry and he starts beating it with a stick. 
But I, I brought that up because there is a significant contrast between Moses's temperament and God's temperament. And there's also a difference between our temperament and God's temperament. I mean, praise the Lord, there is. Praise the Lord, there is a major difference. I wanted to read you guys this quote. It's uh, from Sadhu Singh. She says, God's patience is infinite. Men like small kettles boil with wrath at the least wrong. Not so God. If God were as wrathful, the world would have been a heap of ruins long ago. (laughs) And he's patient. Um, He's patient. And if you do need a second chance or a third or whatever, a millionth chance, I would just encourage you not to delay. Just come back. Come, Come back home. He's ready. And he's, sometimes I think we think God is like Moses. He's just going to freak out once he finds out what we've done. You know, he's not like that. We serve the God who's ready and willing to take us back right now. The God of second chances. Again, David, Peter, man, if he gave those guys a second chance, I know he can give me a second chance. And he has way more than a second chance. Okay, verse two. Let's keep going. Jonah chapter three, verse two. And I want to just look at this second verse, just the one. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. All right, so God is instructing Jonah here. Hey, I have a message for the people. Tell it to them. Uh, It's a good lesson for us too, though. Preach to it the message that I tell you. We, like Jonah, we just need to preach the message that God instructed us to preach. And our job really, as a Christian, as a child of God, it's, it's just to deliver the message but we aren't responsible for the results that's that's not our job our job is just to preach to it the message that i tell you i heard such a good illustration about this um do you guys remember when newspapers were delivered by uh, like a kid on a bike paper route paper route we have any ex-paper routers in here oh come on whoa we, dang i'm like talking to the original committee here <laughs> No, we don't see it uh, too much anymore. It was, yeah, I, I saw when I was a kid, you know, and even before my generation. But uh, you get pretty accurate with them. I've seen them, though. You get, you get pretty accurate. But anyways, the point is, the, the delivery boys are not responsible for what's written in the newspaper. They just get it to you, and they don't care if it's on your forehead or your lawn or whatever. Just, you know, you just give it to them. That's it. That's all they do. And in a way, I'm encouraged by that because in a way, in a sense, we need to be like that, too where we are unapologetic about the message. We think, I mean, we think it's the best news ever. Do with it what you will. But we're just the delivery boys or girls. That's it. That's our job. And I don't mean like have a haughty spirit and we never apologize and we're arrogant. Not like that. But let's just, we get it out there and we leave the results up to God. That's it, man. That's all you got to do. All right. And God, you know, I mean, he didn't tell Jonah to save the Ninevites. That's not what he said. He just said, preach to them the message, I tell you. And I think that if Jonah would have preached the message, I mean, we're about to see the greatest revival ever so far. But if he would have preached the message and not one person would have come to salvation and he would have died the next day, um, I think the Lord would have said, hey, well done, good job. That's all I asked you to do is just preach it. I didn't say save him, you know, that's up to the Lord. But I was reminded of this verse, it's Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. I think the heart behind that verse is we shouldn't be ashamed to give people the only news that can save them. You know, 
and I, I'm not speaking to you as somebody who's really good at sharing my faith. I'm not great at doing it. I'm shaking in my boots when I you know, try to tell somebody about Jesus. Uh, I'm trying to get better. Something I heard recently that was a good way to put it. Tell people the bad news. You're a sinner. Tell people the good news. You know the Savior. That's it, man. You've got to introduce people. And that's just the message we deliver. But okay, let's go on to verses 3 and 4. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent, and Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. Then he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. All right, so now Jonah, is he's doing the thing, man. He's doing what he's finally commissioned to do. He says in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed. In 40, in the Bible, uh, it's always a number of judgment or trial. Remember, Jesus was tested in the desert for 40 days. Uh, Noah's ark, 40 days and 40 nights, it was on the water. Um, and the children of Israel, they wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. So that's uh, traditionally what it's known as. Nineveh was a great city. Remember, it was a three days journey. We think it's 26 miles around. It's actually really a, like a collection of cities is what. So anyways, Jonah's walking through there. He's preaching the message. And he also, I thought this was interesting. He was just using his voice, but he didn't have any of the modern technology that we do now. He didn't do like some major marketing campaign. He didn't have any money allotted to advertising. Uh, no billboards, no tech team. Uh, he didn't even have a megaphone or a microphone. And um, I'm just encouraged by that because he kept it really simple, just a man and his voice. And there's a simplicity to that that I, I just admire. But I just wanted to encourage us, if you are nervous about sharing your faith, and I totally am nervous, it, it's scary. It's like this, one of the scariest things ever. But an encouragement to us is like Jonah's message, we just keep it simple. We, we should know it and we should keep it simple, just like Jonah does here. 40 days and you guys are all toast. Goes, crosses the street. 40 days, everybody here's dead. You know, just, that's like, that's it. <laughs> but it's so cool. This week I've actually, uh, I, I did a lot of, I was just thinking about Jonah preaching in revival and uh, evangelism and him being a prophet. And it really bought, brought me to Billy Graham. I was doing a lot of research on him. And it was so cool. Uh, you know, many consider him to be, you know, one of the greatest evangelists of our time. Uh, but I thought this was really odd. There were a lot of people who did not appreciate his teaching. You know, and I listened to uh, several of his messages. I'm like, this is the best, man. This is awesome. Like, I can understand it. You know, like my daughter can understand it. It's awesome. But there are a lot of people, their critique was, it's too simple. It's too simple. That was their critique about Billy Graham. Um, yeah, and guess who those people were? Religious theologians. <laughs> Such a shame, but I thought this quote was really interesting. This is what, it was, this was a professor of a college. He was uh, one of the leading theologians of his time. But he said, and I quote, he had little patience for Graham's simplistic preaching. Yeah. You know, Pastor Dan shared too that that was one of the critiques of the Jesus Revolution movie. It's uh, easy believism, right? But I don't know about you guys, but I got to say for me, simple is better. Simple actually, my brain, anything else is beyond me. Simple is better. But I think that the message, mess, message we share should be simple. 
people should be able to understand it as well. You know, in Mark chapter 12, it was said of Jesus that the common man heard him gladly, aka, you know, normal people. They could understand him. They actually listened to him, another translation says, with great delight. Like they loved to show up and listen to Jesus, you know? So that means, I mean, God himself, he brought it down to my level. For me, the encouragement, I mean, who am I to make it any more complicated than he did? You know, he said a child can understand the gospel. And I was really reminded of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. Remember, he's between two criminals. And it's towards the end of Luke chapter 23. He's being crucified, criminal on either side of him. This is verse 39 of Luke 23. One of the criminals who were hanging, hanged, blasphemed him, saying, if you are the Christ, save yourself and us. And then verse 40, but the other answering rebuked him, saying, do you not even fear God, seeing you are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Then this is verse 43. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Very simple. There's no altar call, no prayer. Uh, not that those things are bad. Those things are awesome. But the thief confessed that Jesus was Lord and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And that was enough. The Lord says that was enough. You guys heard the acronym KISS, K-I-S-S? Keep it simple, stupid. Or keep it stupid, simple. <laughs> yeah, the first one is more me. I think Zig Ziglar actually said that. Salesman, but a good principle. Keep it simple. And it can be as simple as, I'm a sinner, Jesus saved me. But I think to the person who is searching for God, to the thirsty soul, that's enough. That is enough for that person. That's all, you know, Jonah's whole sermon, in 40 days you're all toast. But look what happens, look at the response. This is incredible. Verse five, so the people of Nineveh believe God, proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. That's verse five. All right, everybody, the most important people, the royalty, the average Joes, the blue collar people, everyone believed God. Notice it doesn't say that they believed Jonah. They believed God. They believed that the message was from God. Um, but it's encouraging to know that that's all it takes. We just got to believe God. You know, they proclaimed this fast and they put on sackcloth. But I think that was a result of what they were experiencing inside their heart. They were like, this is happening. And in response, I need to put on sackcloth. I need to fast. Same thing with baptism, right? My response is, Lord, I want to identify with you. I just got saved. I love you. It's a response. But it's not required for you to be saved. You just have to believe. Believe and you will be saved. This is Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Hallelujah, man. Praise the Lord. That's all you got to do. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You have to believe. Before anything else, they all believe God. We need to believe God. Why did they believe God? Uh, you know, again, I think it's because Jonah was unapologetic, kept it very simple, um, they say there was 600,000 people in Nineveh at that time. Why such a great response? Everybody uh, believed Jonah's message and they believed it was from God. Uh, I think that they knew that Jonah was being serious, that there was weight to, Jonah words, to Jonah's words, that he was 
being for real, <laughs> if I could put it in modern terms. Um, and part of that thought is that we believe that Jonah's appearance was pretty shocking when he entered uh, Nineveh. Part of the, the reason behind that, um, in February of 1891, this is a really long time ago, we have a pretty cool account of a gentleman named uh, James Bartley. Uh, he was swallowed by a whale, and he, he was inside of a whale for about 15 hours. And when he came out, he was super messed up. But I, I want to tell you guys this story because it's really crazy. But there was a, a whaling ship. It was called the Star of the East, and they were hunting whales about 200 miles east of the Falkland Islands. So I, I have a visual here just for us. I like to look at the map and kind of see where it is. So there's South America. There's Argentina. So those are the Falkland Islands. So they're like 200 miles east. They're somewhere over here. That looks really scary out there. They're right there. But they're hunting whales, and the way they would do it, they would have a big ship, and they would send out little ships from the big ships. Ships They're called longboats. James Bartley is in one with an apprentice, okay? And they go out in this longboat, and they see a big sperm whale. And they're like, okay, let's go get this thing. He has a harpoon, and it's attached to hundreds of feet of rope, okay? So they go up next to it, bam, they harpoon it, and it hits the vital organs. But the whale dives, and it's taking all the rope. So hundreds of feet of rope are going out just and yeah, so that's the technique. He, he goes down hundreds and hundreds of feet, but then the line goes slack, okay, which is really freaky because that means that the whale's going to surface somewhere. We don't know where it's going to surface, but it surfaced near their boat, and it broke the long boat, and James Bartley was in that boat. It's blasted to smithereens, and then the whale dies. Okay, so the whale's dead. It's just floating there. The star of the east, the big ship, it's looking for any survivors. It's looking for the guys that they lost, but there's two men missing, an apprentice and James Bartley. And they're like, okay, well, that's a bummer. Yep, we still got to cut this whale up. So it's getting, it's been several hours at this point, and they want to get into the fat right now of the whale uh, before it gets really icky and, uh, and gross. So they pull an all-nighter. They winch it up next to the boat. They're cutting it open. They're cutting the whale open. Sorry, I don't mean to be graphic. This is just what they're doing. Harvesting the whale blubber. And they get to the stomach and they see movement inside the stomach. It's like alien versus predator. You know what I mean? They're in there. And so they call the doctor and the, the, the doctor, they hey, what the heck? Man, there's like, this thing's moving in here. He, the doctor cuts it open and James Bartley falls out of the whale's stomach. True story. He falls out and he's unconscious. The gases from the inside of the whale had rendered him unconscious. So they do a classic treatment. They throw seawater on him. They just dunk him, and he wakes up. He's alive. He's been in there for 15 hours at this point. So he's alive, but it took him about two weeks to recover. He couldn't really speak. He was kind of jumbled. Um, okay, I wanted to read you guys the account of, uh, from the journal. Okay, again, it took him several weeks to recover, but it, and I'm quoting this. As a result of his 15 hours inside the whale's stomach, Bartley lost all the hair on his body and was blind for the rest of his life. His skin was bleached to an unnatural whiteness that gave the appearance of being bloodless, although he was healthy. It's pretty freaky, right? But he went, he went on to live for another 18 years, and then he died 18 years later. It's crazy. So that was 15 hours inside a whale. Jonah spent 72 hours inside the whale. What did he look like when he was rolling up into Nineveh? Um, 
I, I just imagine it was similar to James Bartley. I'm imagining there's not a hair on his body and he's like radiant bleached white as he's walking into the city. Um, and this is the guy that's telling you to repent. It's, it would have just been really, really freaky and you would have taken him seriously because if some guy came in and was like, you guys should repent, but he looked like David Hasselhoff, they'd be like, oh, yeah, whatever. But Jonah looks like a barbecued alien. You know what I mean? Like, he looks insane. Anyways, I think that's part of the reason why, yeah, they just believed him. Their ears perked up. But, you know, I imagine there are many people like, what happened to you, you know? And that's the thing about testimonies, though, man. They're really powerful. Your testimony is powerful. Jonah's was right here. I was recently talking to somebody, and she said to me, uh, two years ago, you wouldn't have recognized me. Like, me and that person are completely different. And uh, her friends even said, you know, we knew something for real was going on because we saw how you were, and we see how you are now. But that's the power of testimony. Jonah has an incredible testimony. They believe God. His testimony was for real. Okay, keep going here. Uh, I'll read verses 6 through 9. Then word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose uh, from his throne and laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and satin ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? All right, so the Ninevites, they take it very seriously. And I think it's so cool because it starts from the top down. The king of Nineveh, he repents, he puts on sackcloth, sackcloth and he sits in ashes. I was just reminded of that old saying, as the king, so the people. Whatever the leader does, you know, that's generally what's going to happen. So if the king repents, we're all repenting. If the king is happy and joyous, it's festival time. It's feast time. Everything's going good, you know. The king does, you know, whatever. We just follow the leader. But it's a good reminder to me, you know, we follow King Jesus. So he's the example for us. We follow where he leads. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, he was in Galilee, and this is in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. This is what he said. Uh, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Similar message to Jonah here, but just like the Ninevites, I mean, this is our starting point too. This is everybody's starting point. This is the baseline practice that must be done in order to have a relationship with God. It starts with repentance. Um, all that means, Lord, I'm turning away from evil and I'm headed the other direction. I'm headed towards you. And for the person who has been, uh, maybe you've been walking with the Lord a little while, I've noticed this and I've tried to get better at it, but I think we develop a spirit of repentance. Um, and that just means that we're quick to repent. We uh, make it a habit of ours to be quick to say, hey, I'm sorry, man, that's my bad. That's me, that's on me, that's my fault, you know. We quickly realize that repentance, uh, it's not a one-time event. It's not a one and done. We're constantly repenting. <laughs> you guys notice that in your walk? 
It's like the closer you are with the Lord, the more often you repent. I don't know what that is. It just is. All right. Well, then God saw their works. This is verse 10. We'll finish it up here. God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Man, praise the Lord. The greatest revival ever, he spares the Ninevites. Uh, they turned from their evil way, so God turned away. He relented he, from destroying them. He didn't destroy them. Such a cool picture. As we think of Nineveh, think of the Lord just sparing them, showing mercy to them. Uh, just everything that we read about, you know, I couldn't help but think about our country. And I'm, I'm so happy to live here, man. I wouldn't, no place I would uh, rather be. I'm really proud, but it's also really scary because uh, the place we live is pretty wicked. Um, not going to get super political or anything like that. I just think we need to turn away from evil. We need to be those that just say, I don't want anything to do with that. And uh, just pray for God to be patient, man. I was reminded of that song, uh, Give Us Clean Hands. Remember that song? Greg, could you sing it? No, you don't have to do it right now. <laughs> no, give us clean hands, Lord. Reminder to me too that, you know, as the leader, just like the king of Nineveh, he led everybody in repenting. But uh, for me too, you know, I'm, I can only be, I'm not responsible for uh, our country, but I, I, I'm responsible for myself and my household. So uh, I was just reminded, I, I need to make sure that we are turning away from evil, my household is. And that's a tall enough order. <laughs> just that, you know, just asking myself, Lord, is there anything evil just in my home? Is there anything evil within me personally? You know, we read that psalm last week, search me, oh God, search me. Is there, and that's, uh, that doesn't always feel the best, you know, when we start to do the little bit of in, internal examination or we look around and just say, as far as our practices go, as far as my family's practices is there anything that you would have us turn away from, Lord? Is there anything that you would say, uh, I, I, I don't, I'm not into that. I wish you guys would stop uh, watching that show or, you know, anything like that. But, you know, I have confidence in the Lord, man. Praise the Lord. I've walked with him long enough. Uh, I know that if there is something that does need to change in my household or within me or my behavior, my attitude, anything like that, I know that God will forgive me. I I know that about him now. That is one sure thing about his character that I have experienced personally. And I know he will forgive. He'll give me another chance. He spared the Ninevites. And uh, as we're going to see in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah's not really happy about it. He's really, really ticked off that uh, God spared the Ninevites. But just wanted to encourage you guys tonight, man. He is the God of second chances. He is the God of come on back home. I'll give you another chance and another one. Gave Jonah one, he gave the Ninevites a second chance, and so he can surely give me a new one. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, not being like us, Lord. Thank you. You're just the standard. You're the standard of goodness and patience and mercy, and we cling to you. We look to you. We're so thankful for your word, Lord, and just the way that you encourage us. So I do pray now, Father, if there's uh, any wicked way within us, if there's something that we need to do away with, um, our families, or us personally, uh, the people that we lead, Lord. I, I pray that you would reveal it to us. 
and that we would be willing to turn away, that we would be willing to change. Make us willing to change, Lord. It's so hard. It's so hard because we get stuck in routines and in patterns, and it's just, it's difficult. But Father, I just ask again, if there's something we do need to change, give us the grace, Lord, to do it, please. I ask this in your name, and uh, we praise you, Father, in your name, amen.